Welcome to the Sustainability Agenda podcast. My name is Fergal Byrne. Every week I speak to leading figures from the world of sustainability and explore the sustainability agenda in marketing and strategy, technology, innovation, investment and finance. We look at the latest thinking, what's working and the future and evolution of the sustainability agenda. I'm very pleased today to introduce Paul Eakins. Paul is Professor of Resources and Environmental Policy at UCL, where he's Director of the University's Institute for Sustainable Resources. Paul is also Deputy Director of the UK Energy Research Centre and leads on its energy resources theme. Over the last 20 years, Professor Eakins has been a member advisor to various UK government and parliamentary boards, committees and commissions. His academic work focuses on the conditions and policies for achieving an environmentally sustainable economy. Well, thank you very much, Paul, for taking time to speak today to the sustainability agenda. It's a great honor to speak to you, um, a pioneer in uh, thinking uh, about economics and sustainability. I, I've just been reading uh, The Living Economy again, and that was written quite a while ago. There's been a lot uh, happened since then, I guess, uh, certainly in terms of awareness of environmental, uh, e uh, social and governance problems, ESG, uh, climate change and so forth. Did at one stage you make the connection between sustainability problems and economic problems, or that between sustainability and economics? At, at its heart, what is that connection, would you say? Well, there are a number of ways of looking at it, um, but uh, certainly the living economy for me was uh, the first time I'd looked into these uh, issues in a lot of detail. Um, uh, I'd not been uh, active in economics before then uh, and since then of course I, I went back to university and, and got a PhD in it and, and hope I understand it better than uh, I did then. Yes. Um, but uh, I also sometimes look back at books in order to see how ideas have moved on and I have to say that it's uh, in one sense it's gratifying that the living economy was was very prescient because uh, pretty well all the big issues in environmental economics and indeed more broadly about how the environment relates to the economy. Almost all the big issues are there, um, uh, explored in quite a bit of detail. The disappointing thing is that we haven't made more progress on them. So that, uh, for example, the, there's quite an extended treatment in living economy of environmental taxation. Uh, the idea of environmental taxation in those days was relatively new. Um, people were working through the implications of these things called externalities, these impacts on the environment that um, are caused by market transactions but don't get into the price of the market goods and services concerned. Uh, since then there's been an enormous amount of activity and literature on environmental taxes but when you look at the number of environmental taxes that have been introduced most particularly perhaps with regard to carbon taxes and our new awareness of climate change, it's really quite disappointing that we haven't made more progress. Yes, well it, it's interesting you say that and I know there some people have said after COP21 that this was a, you know, uh, I would say a failure or a shortcoming, I don't know whether the expectations, you know, we could reasonably have an expectation that more might have been done, but um, where do you see things now in terms of the carbon tax and you know what 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 needs to happen now and are you optimistic that that gets, it, that will uh, take place well from a, a kind of economic and technical side it's it's not hard um, 
we understand that we couldn't have or, or it would be disruptive to have a huge carbon tax immediately but um, a country like Sweden already has a carbon tax of about 100 euros a ton uh, on uh, households, on all household expenditure. Uh, the Swedish economy clearly hasn't uh, tanked, hasn't nosedived as a result of that and if societies generally were to say okay the climate change issue is real, it's serious over the next five years, so by 2020, 2021, we are going to have a carbon tax of $100 a ton. Uh, by 2030, it's going to be $300 a ton, and it's going to go up every year uh, in increments until we reach those levels. If investors and producers believed that, then we would be well on the way uh, to implementing the energy transition that we know we've got to have because they will know that by 2020 uh, a number of renewable energies are going to be economic without subsidy given that kind of carbon tax and it's going to be quite clear that uh, technologies like unabated coal will simply be uneconomic so all thought of new investment in that, that particular technology uh, you know just simply wouldn't take place and so, so markets would do the rest but if you don't send markets that kind of clear signal it's not surprising that they continue to do what they've always done yes well I, I have read that some companies are using what they call shadow prices you know and starting to integrate those into their decision making um, are you optimistic that something will happen I mean how how critical is is the carbon tax as a you know tool and um, you know what, 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 what needs to happen well uh, from an economics perspective the carbon tax makes enormous sense because it then allows markets to do the rest and the global economy is such a complicated thing with 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 such extended supply chains that it's actually very difficult for the other policy option main policy option which is regulation uh, to get a handle on these issues um, when the price signal is is working against it now uh, the carbon tax won't do everything and we would certainly need regulation for some things and there are some areas where regulation is the best um, is 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 the best approach anyway so with regard to energy efficiency in buildings for example there's an enormous literature that suggests that regulation works better than carbon taxes but even if you accept that having a carbon tax would make energy more expensive and therefore energy efficiency measures would pay off more quickly and that would make the kind of regulations that you might need um, uh, more more acceptable to people. So um, even when regulation would be your first instrument of choice, it's going to be supported by a carbon tax. Yes. How how might all this come about? Well, you know, I, I don't have a crystal ball, unfortunately, but given that it makes such good economic sense and given that so many of the low carbon technologies are now on the verge of market competitiveness, especially in the countries where they're best suited so when we're talking about onshore wind in this country or we're talking about solar uh, photovoltaics uh, in, 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 in the tropics um, it actually wouldn't take an enormous amount uh, of carbon taxation or similar kinds of measures uh, to turn that market round and I think we can see that because of the point you made that there are a lot of companies now shadow pricing uh, their activities in carbon because they want to be ready uh, as and when the policymakers finally get the bit between their teeth and decide to do this, then those companies will be prepared and they'll be 
ready and they'll know what the opportunities are. So that makes a lot of sense from a business point of view. But at the moment, the policymakers simply aren't moving forward fast enough. And, and obviously, like lots of people, I'd hope that after Paris in December, uh, we would have had some real impetus and momentum in this direction. And there are initiatives, and one can be hopeful about them. Uh, the World Bank and its, its carbon tax uh, club. Um, uh, but uh, we need to go a lot faster uh, and, and, and with, with much more sureness and confidence for the markets uh, really to start taking notice. Right, right, that's interesting. I mean, how bad are things, um, do you think? I, I saw that, uh, uh, well, Leonard DiCaprio had a fundraising yesterday, um, I think it was, and he was talking about, um, well, I'm not sure, coming from a very scientific background, but the need, you know, for, for, for change in our lifetime. Uh, I think he's even talking a, sh a shorter time frame, but I'm just wondering, you know, what is the window, in, do you think, in order to, to, to create, you know, significant change? Well, it's very difficult to say. Um, again, uh, a crystal ball would help, but um, unfortunately we don't have such things. Uh, I think all one can say is that uh, there are certain things going on in the climate which people didn't think would happen as quickly as they ha are happening. So I'm talking about glacier melt, I'm talking about uh, the melt of the ice caps, um, I'm talking about some of the uh, more extreme uh, weather conditions that we've seen around the world, uh, so that we're getting uh, events that, you know, in past times we would have thought, well, this is a one in 200 year or one in 100 year event kind of happening three or four times in a decade. And um, uh, therefore, at the moment, it looks as if the climate scientists are being optimistic, uh, that, that actually they're a cautious bunch of people and they're saying that uh, we need to start doing things because of things that might happen to the climate, uh, but the things are starting to happen to the climate more quickly than they were anticipating. And that suggests to me that we need to move uh, more quickly than uh, we thought we might need to move. And so uh, Leonardo DiCaprio, compared with me as a relatively young man, I'm absolutely certain that we need to make the transition in his lifetime. And I suspect we probably need to make it in mine too. So you asked about a window. Uh, I would say that unless the global energy transition is well underway within the next 10 years, uh, then I'm afraid uh, any thought of keeping us to two degrees is, is moonshine. We're probably headed for north of three degrees. And given what we're witnessing at one degree, which is where we are now, roughly, um, it's, it's not a world that I think would be a, 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 a very pleasant one for many of the, uh, whatever, seven or eight billion people. Um, not, a, not, not a very pleasant one for us to live in. Stark, stark warning. Very stark. Yes. Um... Just going back again to the, the connection between the sustainability and economics, um, it certainly seems today that the, our current version of uh, well, free market economics as such has, has uh, contributed to significant uh, inequality and also uh, unpopularity of, of, of these kind of economic ideas rising around the world. And I'm just wondering, um, you know, and I, I know the IMF recently raised questions about uh, some, some of the ideas that they had been pursuing. Uh, and I'm just wondering, to what extent um, could we see some change in, in economic policies that might, might also extend to 
include sustainability because clearly, as, as you mentioned, you know, some of the issues at the, at the beginning in terms of the externalities and so forth. Do you have a sense of, a, of a, an economic paradigm, as it were, that might <laughs> offer uh, some, some uh, solution to these uh, problems? Well, I, I mean, I think that's a very, very big question. And it's one that we don't, uh, like so many, know the categoric answer to. Uh, and there's a whole range of views out there to the effect that uh, some people think that uh, actually markets could solve the climate problem um, uh, more or less uh, by themselves if they were given the right signals through the kinds of carbon taxes that we've already been discussing. Uh, other people think that the change in the economic system will be, have to be much more fundamental um, in order to uh, resolve as well some of these problems of inequality. Uh, and we all know that inequality in the global economy and indeed within most countries uh, has risen enormously over the last 15 or 20 years. Um, bodies like the IMF have been warning about that and the OECD have been saying, you know, something needs to be done about that. But so far, uh, no country really has found the answer within a globalized economy as to exactly what to do about inequality. And in contrast to the climate issue where basically if you were to get a strong carbon tax signal and you were to back that up with smart regulation and you were to uh, give support for the new technologies that are coming through quite strongly, we can see quite clearly how that problem could be resolved um, with policy tools that we're quite familiar with. With regard to inequality, uh, the, the issue seems to be much, much more difficult. Um, uh, and actually interfering with the uh, workings of the market in such a way that you get fairer market outcomes seems to be uh, politically extremely difficult in that politicians can't really find a way to do it. Um, but but uh, again, we, we also don't really know what the economic outcomes are going to be. So uh, I'm resistant to linking the issue of the climate with inequality. Um, I'm very much in favor of doing something about inequality, but I don't think it's necessary to do something about inequality in order to tackle the climate crisis. And I think we need to tackle the climate crisis whether or not we try to do anything about inequality. So that's my own position, but I'm aware that there's a, a pretty vibrant debate about this out there. Right. That's very interesting. And I guess at the heart of this as well is the uh, ideas about economic growth and we can talk about you know the the, the western or the de developed economies and, and maybe less developed or the emerging markets however you, you want to frame them but this idea of a low growth uh, uh, future which uh, we, we can talk about in the context of the developed world but um, you know clearly would cause uh, big challenges for some of the bigger countries who are you know need economic growth for you know uh, population and so forth so I'm just wondering, um, and clearly that you know that plays into the whole uh, inequality question. But I'm just wondering about what are your thoughts on the possibility of, uh, you know, low carbon, high growth? <laughs> is such a thing? Uh, you know, ha, ha, is that something we should be looking for? Well, um, I, I think it's something that is quite possible, and uh, this is this is an area where I feel on um, slightly safer ground. I, I did my PhD in this area. I spent an enormous amount of time as an academic looking into the relationship between climate policy and economic growth. And I've seen nothing in the evidence so far that suggests that climate policy is going to have a significant impact, negative impact on growth rates. So that's the first thing to say. 
Um, I think it's quite possible that it could set off a new wave of innovation and a new spurt of new technologies, new ways of doing things that resulted in greater economic growth. The developed countries are already in a phase of uh, pretty low economic growth by historical standards. So if we manage to get one to two percent these days um, in Europe, at least, we, we kind of feel pretty pleased. Um, I see no reason at all to think that climate policy is going to reduce that. I think it could increase it. But I think the most important thing is that given that uh, the single most important aspect of the transition will be increased investment in low carbon technologies and the numbers there are mind boggling. We need something like three trillion dollars a year to start going into low carbon technologies as opposed to about the 600 billion that we saw last year, which is already a large number, but it's still not three trillion, it's still less than a quarter of that. Um, uh, investors find it difficult to invest uh, in the absence of economic growth. And so if we want that level of investment to go into the low carbon sectors, then I think uh, we have to hope that it is going to be consistent with economic growth because otherwise investors are not going to make those investments because um, investors from the private sector uh, quite reasonably are looking for returns and returns are generated by economic growth. So um, a, a low growth scenario in my view um, and certainly a zero growth scenario, let alone a degrowth scenario, I think would be very, very worrying from a climate point of view because it would effectively mean that you wouldn't get the investment that you need in order to get these low carbon technologies on the ground to build the infrastructures for them to renew our housing stocks, to renew our transport systems, above all to renew our electricity systems uh, and to supply electricity in those places that they, don't have any, that they don't have any electricity at all. All that needs a growth economy. Um, and as I say, I see no evidence to think that we can't have a growth economy uh, and move in a low carbon direction. Um, but uh, again, I'm aware that that's a contested issue. Right, right, interesting. That's very interesting. You mentioned the uh, st staggering sums of money that need to be invested. Um, there does seem to be movement on the investor front, investors in various different ways looking at, uh, we might call it ESG, but looking at sustainability issues in, in different ways. There are different reporting initiatives looking at the corporate side, and I know work's been done now connecting sovereign debt and environmental issues. Is that in, something that you, you re feel reasonably optimistic? I mean, or do you have a sense of how important investors are and whether this kind of progress is, is necessary and, and sufficient? I mean, are, are we heading in the right direction? Well, I think we are heading in the right direction, but we're not heading in the right direction fast enough. Um, investors are obviously absolutely critical, and I don't think anyone believes that uh, this, this is that the energy transition is going to come about through public investment alone. It's going to have to be an enormous amount of private investment, and as I've said, private investors are going to look for returns. Um, uh, the low oil price means that the private investors uh, are increasingly wary about investing in fossil fuels because they're afraid they may not get the returns from there either. But obviously the low oil price also puts the pressure on renewables because it means that renewables are that much more expensive in compared with oil than they were when oil was uh, much more expensive itself. So I think you've got this kind of double-edged sword. Um, 
Uh, if you told me 10 years ago that by 2016 we'd be having 600 billion a year going into renewables, I'm not sure that I would have believed you, but that's where we were in 2015. I understand in 2016 uh, investment looks as if it's tailing off uh, slightly from that um, record level last year. But nevertheless, I think that is still a very positive sign. And coming back to the main theme of the conversation, if investors thought that by 2020 there would be a $100 a ton carbon tax on fossil fuels, then they would be even more inclined to pile into renewables, given that renewables now are not a kind of risky technology. They're tried, they're tested, they've been deployed at scale. We know the technologies are there. We know that there are great prospects for further cost reductions. And therefore, investors would really want to go there if they could be assured that, that um, the, the competitive position vis-a-vis -vis fossil fuel technologies um, you know, was, was going to be in their favor. And, and that, again, comes back to the crucial importance of them believing that policymakers are serious about this climate stuff and that they will implement the policies, from my point of view, as I say, preferably a carbon tax, in order to get this, uh, this investment moving. Yes, very interesting. You, you mentioned the term and you used the term energy transition. Um, can you give me a little bit of a picture of what that would actually look like? And maybe if it's, you know, we're on a journey from Land's End to John O'Groats, where are we? Uh, well, that's a, that's a very interesting analogy. Um, what, what would it look like? It would look uh, like um, uh, a, a different landscape from where we currently are, where uh, the great majority of our electricity is generated by centralized power stations that use fossil fuels or nuclear. Uh, we may or may not get a significant quantity of new nuclear coming through. That's one of the great uncertainties. Some countries clearly don't like it at all. Others are prepared to embrace it. But so far, at least, it's very expensive. And it's much more expensive than renewables on, on the latest numbers that we have in the UK, at least, for building new nuclear power stations. So renewables is going to be absolutely key. Uh, and they come in intermittent uh, doses, as we know, sun and wind uh, are, are not totally reliable. So we can be sure that there will be uh, more uh, energy storage. And for my money, the next generation of tech billionaires is going to come from the people who crack the energy storage problem. There's a huge amount of money going into that. And I'd be very surprised if we haven't cracked that problem within five years. Um, and then there will be the smart grid that enables us to uh, tune our energy consumption and indeed enable suppliers to tune their the energy production for when the wind is blowing, when the sun is blowing, then you've got storage technologies, you've got smart consumers who will choose to consume when the price is, uh, when the price is relatively low. And um, uh, that'll be the main difference. There will be much more decentralized energy than we have at the moment, uh, so that people generating power at home uh, through photovoltaics or even uh, their, their local community wind farm so that our distribution networks are going to have to be set up to handle that and the information communication technologies are going to be important for that too. Um, people generally I think be much more aware of where their power is coming from uh, and uh, you know how much they're spending when they choose to consume it in certain uh, at certain times of the day but um, it would still be a uh, hundred percent coverage uh, Lights would still go on when you press the switch. Uh, so we would have all the energy services that we're used to. Um, and how far are we along that journey? I would guess 
from John O'Groats to Land's End, we've probably got to Exeter. Uh, so we've started, but we're not yet out of the southwest of the UK, which means that we're still relatively at the beginning of the uh, of of the journey. But we can see uh, we can see the motorways ahead of us, or we can see the railway tracks ahead of us. We're getting on the uh, fast trains uh, that that run that run north, and um, we're probably aware that uh, we've still got a bit of track to build, um, you know, up, up in Scotland in order to get to John of Groats by the time we need to get there. So there's quite a bit of infrastructure still to go in, but uh, we've got the technologies really to get moving. Uh, we still need government support for some of them. So that's uh, subsidies, that's incentives, uh, but those uh, are falling off very fast as the technologies uh, come down in cost as they get deployed. Um, and so uh, broadly, I think it's a, it's, a, it's a very, very exciting part of the journey. Um, and uh, as we said right at the beginning of this conversation, the stakes are very high indeed. We really need, need now to get moving. Um, we've, we've got through the rather slow uh, part of the journey from Penzance to Exeter. Uh, we now need to get on the main line, uh, get some of those high-speed trains going and, uh, and move north. Fascinating. Very, very uh, interesting picture. Um, of the journey ahead. Um, maybe one final question, which comes back a little bit to the something we discussed at the beginning, and it's the relationship between, I suppose, economic ideas. And there's been a lot of uh, criticism in various forms about, you know, uh, about ideas in economics, I suppose, about limiting ideas or how uh, models don't represent reality and, and things like that, uh, and, and not just from you know an environmental perspective. And I'm just wondering how important do you think it is that you know economic models uh, reflect the sustainability questions, environmental questions, and and you know very quickly I suppose it's a big 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 topic. But um, is, is there progress being made there? It's a huge topic and it's enormously important. Um, I mean, when humans think about the future, we do so in terms of models. Uh, I, either uh, implicit models, in other words, we kind of think, what do we know, and, and make up our minds and, and then, you know, make decisions on the basis of gut instinct. And very often that's fine. Uh, on the other hand, what formal economic and environmental modeling allows you to do uh, is to make those decisions. Uh, on the basis of explicit assumptions in the models with explicit relationships, um, they're almost certainly not right because reality is very complex and therefore you will have to make simplifications uh, in order to represent reality in a way that uh, is, is manageable. But you're being absolutely transparent about the assumptions that you're making uh, and about the relationships that you think are working within the economy. So I think it's it's a really important subject that we do that. As long as people don't think when they look at the results of a model that it's kind of God speaking. Uh, the purpose of a model is simply to enable you to think rationally, constructively, positively on the basis of absolutely clear assumptions and relationships that have been de defined in the model. And then obviously you look at the results and think, well, do these make sense? Uh, have I missed anything in the model? Uh, are the things that, uh, that that I've left out that are important, which I didn't think were important, because the results that come through, um, you know, seem seem not quite to be uh, online. So you still have to use your uh, your intelligence when you look at model results. There has been a lot of uh, improvement in modeling 
uh, of the energy system, of energy system transitions, of the way the energy system relates to the economy, right the way through to uh, the way the energy system and the economy relate to the climate. And then obviously we're starting to talk about integrated assessment modeling, which uh, is something that the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change spends a lot of time reviewing. And so there has been enormous progress, uh, largely made possible, of course, by the increased computing power that we now have available, which uh, 15 years ago, we do lots of things now that simply wouldn't have been possible um, uh, 15 years ago. So computing power has increased enormously. Uh, do models give us all the insights that we want yet? No, of course they don't. Uh, and they never will because reality is going to be much too complex to uh, be absolutely certain that what we're representing in models um, you know, is uh, fit for purpose. But uh, they've made enormous progress and it's very important that they make further progress. And I'm spending a lot of my own academic life working in this field. Well, I, I wish you the very best, Paul, with your uh, work in this area and continuing research. And thank you so much for talking to the Sustainability Agenda today. You're very welcome. I hope it's helpful. Thank you for listening to the Sustainability Agenda podcast. I hope you found it interesting. Please sign up at the sustainabilityagenda.com website or on iTunes to make sure you don't miss any future episodes.